Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Value investing has been under fire for a long time now. Value stocks have trailed the market for over a decade, and there are many reasons why some investors have argued that its best days are behind it. One of the goals with our podcast is to get a wide range of views on major issues like this that investors face from some of the smartest minds in the investing world. We have now completed 13 interviews and have covered this topic in many of them. So we wanted to put together a compilation of the best answers we have received to try to answer the question, is value investing dead? But before we bring in the experts, we first wanted to look at the reasons why value works in the first place and whether anything has changed with them. Here is Jack Forehand from episode 38 talking about the reasons why value investing works and whether anything has changed with them. If you want to argue that value investing is broken, then the first thing you want to do is try to attack the reasons why it works in the first place. And if you look at academic research, there's two major reasons that explain why value works over the long term. The first is a risk-based reason. So value investing works because value investing securities are more risky than the market and investors are compensated for that risk. So let's look at the past decade and say, is there anything we can find to disprove that risk-based argument? So is there anything we can find to say value and stocks have been less risky in the most recent decade than they were over the long term. Well, it, whether you measure risk by volatility or whether you measure risk by the, these long extended periods of underperformance, I, I can't find anything to say that value investing has become less risky in the most recent decade. So then let's move on to the behavioral explanation. The second explanation is value stocks, tend, value tends to work over time because investors systematically underprice value stocks. They think the problems with value companies are worse than they are and they overreact to that bad news, and they systematically underprice them, which provides an opportunity for value investors. There's a great quote from Cliff Asnes that I think explains this very well. What he said is, besides just an inherent discomfort with randomness, part of the issue is confusion about why value works at all. It does not depend on getting big events or trends right. It does not depend on having perfect accounting information. Certainly, it does not require a lack of massive technological change over time. No matter what the situation, it simply needs investors to net overreact. Companies that are cheap need to be too, a bit too cheap for whatever set of facts exists at the time, and expensive companies need to tend to be a bit too expensive. And so the question is, has anything changed in the past decade in terms of how investors are reacting to this? Are, are, are investors now not overestimating the problems with value stocks? And, and I think the evidence would show that they're not. And so when you look at both these arguments overall, when you look at the risk-based argument and the behavioral-based argument, it seems like both of them still hold. It seems like value stocks still are more risky than the market, and it seems like investors still are potentially overreacting to this bad news with value security. And so that, that should give you some hope for value investing in the future. In addition to looking at the risk and behavioral explanations for why value works, it's important to understand the components of the long-term returns of value because it allows us to consider whether any of those components have stopped working. For that, we turn to our friend, Wes Gray, Alpha Architect. I asked Wes what he makes of the struggles of value in the past decade. Here is his take. So, um... Yeah, so, so a few things I would say is, is the one thing is when people say value has gotten destroyed, it's always a relative statement to, you know, expensive, growthy type things. And that's definitely a factual statement. So on a relative basis, uh, especially U.S. value, you know, obviously U.S. growth has crushed it and U.S. value has relatively not crushed it. 
But when you kind of step away from that lens, like value as a long only strategy, it's still been making a lot of money. So it's just that the most expensive kind of tech laden securities like the quote unquote gross stocks have just whooped it on so hard, right? So, so it's not that like being a value investor has been a bad thing, uh, at least in a US based sense, you still made money, you know, these firms have grown, et cetera. It's just that your return relative stunk. Um, and so, and, and what's interesting about that is, is when you look at like an argument like what Asnes made recently, it tells you one story. He says, look at the long short spread is insane right now. And that's crazy. And if you believe in any form of mean reversion, you might want to bet on that. Uh, and I, by mean that, I mean long short value, right? And that's a reasonable argument. But most people don't invest in long short value. They invest in long only value. Well, guess what? Long only value ain't that cheap. Like it's actually had PE inflation over the last 10 years, arguably, right? Because, because the overall stock market has gotten so expensive and drifted, uh, you know, down in, in a, I always think in yields term, I'll, I'll flip it to PE to make it less confusing, but it's drifted up in a valuation sense. So that doesn't, so all the, even the cheapest stocks have also drifted up. So even dirt ball value securities have, have enjoyed a valuation bump. Right. And so if you look at on an absolute basis relative to time, value stocks are kind of like whatever, mid-range cheap if you're a long only value person. And so do I believe that they'll relatively outperform the rest of the market because the overall spread is is rich? Sure. But that doesn't tell you anything about the absolute performance. Right. It's just it, going forward because valuations are just overall so high. I would expect that value as a long only strategy, how most people implement it, will be relatively good, but overall shitty, right? And if you're happy with that, that's cool. Um, but it's probably just something to, to highlight because there's you know, been a lot of these crazy debates on what Asnes says versus what other people say. And, and Asnes obviously speaking to that very specific long short bet. Um, and I would agree with them. That one's probably pretty compelling. Uh, on an app, like just overall, because, because now there you don't have to worry about the beta component of it. So I want to ask you about on a relative basis, I want to ask you about these arguments that value is dead. You know, you, you've heard a lot of them and I, I tried to, I'm a big value guy like you are, but I tried to write an article a while back where I tried to make the case against value stocks. And I talked about, yeah. you know, technology has changed things or low interest rates yeah. have changed things. I tried to make all the arguments people have made, you know, yeah. and I wasn't able to convince myself but I'm just yeah. wondering when you look at all that, do you see anything that's happened here that would lead you to question value? Or do you think this is all really just another long period of underperformance like many we've seen in the past? Um, yeah. So on anything like this, I always sit back and try to think like, well, why does anything earn money? Right. And so if you think about securities, um, you basically get paid one of three ways. You're going to have earnings growth. You're going to have a, a di current dividend yield you receive. And then you're gonna to have to sell this asset again, right? And there's, so there's gonna be some sort of valuation component of your return. Um, and so if you look at like value, why the hell does value work? Well, so presumably value or the economy and all stocks are gonna grow roughly their earnings growth rate with the overall economy, plus or minus, you know, something. And then you're gonna have that dividend yield. Well, and then you're gonna have this valuation change. So with value, 
you usually get the generic earnings growth, or maybe it's a little bit crappier in the short run and it kind of mean reverts back to normal. You, and so, so you kind of win, lose, it's, you know, you're hanging, hanging tough there. Um, on the dividend yield, you obviously generally get a higher carry with value because the dividend yields you're buying at are typically higher than like, you know, the alternatives. And then where you usually, you know, get the, the wins on value is that you buy something at a P of five and then in five years, whatever, you can turn around and sell for a P of 10, right? That, value, that valuation uh, difference. And so when someone asks me, hey, is value going to work in the future? I would just say the following. I was like, well, do you think that the firms will have some sort of earnings growth? You obviously need earnings growth to have an E, which you would get paid a P for at some point. So, okay, if you think they're going to grow with the general economy, good. Or even lower in the economy, fine. Um, do they are you buying them at higher yields than overall market? That's a bird in the hand, right? If you're buying stocks that are paying 3% yield and the market is a whatever, 1.5% yield, you're banking 1.5% for sure. So if you get that, that's kind of like, that's great. And that could offset any sort of poor earnings growth you have. And then the final component is like the change in the valuation. So, so at the end, when you sell it, you buy the thing at five. Uh, are you going to sell it at three times PE? Are you going to sell it at five? Or are you going to maybe get to sell it at 10? Um, so for value to work, and presuming how it's worked in the past, generally when you buy dirt balls, you, you buy them at five, you on average get to sell them at a little bit higher. Uh, but let's just throw that away. Let's say that doesn't happen. You buy it at five PE, you got to buy it at five PE again. Great, that's a wash. Um, and that would suck for value premium, right? Then the other component is the carry. You're buying at a dividend yield of three, the market is one and a half, and let's assume payout ratios are the same, roughly. Well, you're always banking one and a half percent spread. So that, that's going to contribute to your value premium. Um, but then let's look to the earnings growth component. If you believe that you know the overall growth of like this basket of value stocks is going to be substantially different or a long horizon than you know your the overall market, you you could lose out there, right? So so the, it's just these three levers you can pull to make money on any sort of stock, um, and I don't see why there would be any reason to believe that value stocks don't generally grow roughly with the economy on average over time. Uh, let's say they do a little bit less because they're not Google. But remember, Google's not the economy either. That's just one piece of it. Uh, the dividend yield you get to bank for sure. And then mo I still believe that humans are crazy and they generally throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I believe personally that you'll always get on average this expectation revision component uh, over time as well as like an extra little kicker to the value premium. But who knows? Maybe that doesn't happen. Uh, and that's why value wouldn't work. Shitty earnings growth, uh, dividend yield is so good, but it, it, the earnings growth kills it. And then instead of selling it at 5 PE, it, it ends up being even worse than anyone could ever think. And you sell it at 3 PE. That's how value underperforms basically. One of the reasons many have cited that value investing is dead is the fact that it has underperformed in the last decade. But of all the reasons to be concerned about value, that may be the least relevant. Bloomberg columnist Nir Kassar explains why in this clip from our interview with him. So this might irritate some people, but I don't find, I'm not particularly uh, fussed about all this, to be honest. Um, 
And uh, and I, let me let me let me explain just by way of analogy. Um, think about the equity risk premium. Think about the proposition that stocks be bonds. If you ask people, hey, do you think stocks are going to be bonds in the future? They'll probably say, I, to to a person, I think they'll probably say, yeah. I mean, stocks are riskier, you know. And so if you take more risk, you'll get more returns. Yeah, stocks will be bonds. Okay. Well, how do you know that? Well, we have all this evidence. We have like 100 years of data going back to 1926 or 1871 or, 19, or 1801, depending on whose data you trust and want to use or whatever. We have historical evidence that shows that there's been an equity risk premium. Okay, well, how do you know that's going to persist going forward? Because here's, here's, here's an interesting fact. Over the 20 years, beginning in 2000, to roughly 20 years, beginning in 2000, to June of 2020, bonds beat stocks. Bonds beat the S&P 500. So there's a 20-year period where the equity risk premium is upside down. So, I mean, doesn't that negate the equity risk premium? Well, no, no, that's just a one 20-year period. You're just cherry-picking one 20-year period. I've got 100 years of data that shows that the equity, okay. Well, this is the same data that tells us, or at least that implies to us, that there's a value premium, that there's a size premium. It's the exact same proposition. So why are we saying that the equity risk premium is, go, is, is fine, but all of a sudden value underperforms for 10 or 15 years and the value premium is gone, right? It's completely nonsensical. And the answer, I think, is that, you know, people have a tendency, I mean, this is not, I'm not breaking news here, but, you know, people have a tendency to, to, uh, to look in the rearview mirror and I think to lose sight um, of the longer term evidence. And I think there's a fixation right now with value um, that just seems to me to be completely nonsensical. Um, you know, we know that value disappears for long periods of time. And so it has disappeared, you know. Um, do I think that means that the value premium is dead? No. Do I think that means that the value premium will pay in the future? Not necessarily, obviously. But I have no reason to believe um, that, that just because value has underperformed over the last 15 years, that it's gone forever. Talk about burden of proof. I just don't think the people who are, I don't, I don't think if you're, if you want to make that case, I think that's going to be a very difficult case to make. Sorry, Jay. What do you think about the arguments about certain facts being completely different? Like for instance, the federal reserve policy, suppressing interest rates and people talking about how value does much better when either rates are higher or there's more inflation or, you know, technology has changed the way the economy works in general. And so, you know, these technology companies have such an advantage that value companies aren't going to do well anymore. Do you think there's any merit to any of that? Well, there could be, right? So, I mean, we can't say conclusively that there isn't merit, but, you know, again, going back to sort of the burden of proof, I think if that were the proposition, you'd have to go back and you'd have to explain why that same theory didn't, didn't prove true in, in previous periods, right? So, um, you know, we've had various interest rate regimes historically, um, and those interest rate regimes don't necessarily align neatly with this theory that low interest rates favor growth stocks. You know, I'm sure you looked at the evidence as well as I have. Um, and, and just to cherry pick one, you know, one, one example that you've heard a million times that everyone's heard a million times, but I think is, 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 is you have to explain it, which is the late 90s, right? The late 90s was a period where everyone said, this is different, this is technology, you know, growth is going to win, blah, blah, blah. And then bang, from 2000 to 2007, now you went in. Um, so why is this different than that period? You know, it just... That's going to be a very difficult argument to make. Let's put it this way. I would not want to make that argument. If you said to me, you know, if this was a, 
this is, I went to law school. This was a, a this was a moot law, uh, you know, moot law argument. You said to me, Nir, I'm assigning you the the um, the, the value is dead because technology is going to take over argument. I'd say, no, thanks. I don't have enough evidence for that one. Another argument some have used in the current period against value is that COVID-19 has changed things, and we can't rely on the fundamentals before a breaking point like that to predict what will happen with value stocks afterwards. We ask our good friend Tobias Carlyle about this in our interview with him. Switching gears for a second, I wanted to ask you about COVID-19 and sort of some of the arguments that value is broken, but breaking them down into short-term arguments and long-term arguments. And one of the interesting questions I've gotten that I had a hard time answering, to be honest, is when, when we look at COVID-19, all of us that are value investors are looking at the price relative to something, whether it's earnings or cash flows and and all of those somethings occurred before what has now become a breaking point. So whatever those earnings were, whatever those cash flows were last year, whatever it is after that breaking point is going to probably be really, really different. And so the question is, how do you distinguish you know, the, the companies that really are attractive values when maybe we can't rely on those past fundamentals as much as we you know, can in a normal time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I don't have a really good answer for it other than I don't know that this is any different to what we always do. Like we're always buying something in a crisis and it's usually it's more specific to the company. And the reason that you get this chance to buy it is because there's this massive uncertainty. People just don't know what the next quarter or two look like. And so for value guys, like that's business as usual, right? You just get to go in and buy these things before you find out what the answer is. But you've got an idea on a TTM historical basis what the business is capable of. You've done some work on the balance sheet. So, yeah, they can survive. They generate free cash flow under normal circumstances, clearly the next quarter or two. You know, anybody who does a DCF valuation can tell you how important the front month year or the front years are to the valuation. Like, not very, right? It's, it's all like in 5% the term. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not really relevant at all. So the question is, can they survive? As a value guy, you've already done that work too, right? You've looked at the balance sheet. You've got an idea. Another important thing to keep in mind with value investing is that there are many ways to define it. Although those of us who are systematic value investors look at buying statistically cheap stocks, ultimately value investing is about buying something for less than it's worth. Professor Partha Mohanram made this point in our interview with him. Low price to book stocks, if you're just doing a sort on that, you know, it's been a pretty tough decade for portfolios that are built using those um, types of metrics. And, you know, there's some, I mean, there's a lot of different arguments. I mean, some are saying that, you know, technology has broken value investing or the federal reserve policy with low interest rates. And, and to your point about these, you know, large cap tech companies that have really grown in and delivered on their fundamentals. I mean, obviously they're making up more and more of a heavier weight in these market cap weighted indices, but do you ever think about this struggle of, of like what I would call like traditional value investing and maybe have any thoughts about what it may mean or what it may mean for the future? I know it's a pretty broad question, but I'm just wondering what your opinion is on the struggles here. See, I think the struggle has to do with the fact that this is the, like going back to your earlier question. And I think Jack's earlier question about what the definition of value is, right? If you take this incredibly static definition of value is defined by a like a valuation ratio, like the book to market ratio, the pre P2E ratio. Yes, these these stocks have gotten hammered, right? Uh, that's because people have been extremely mechanical, saying I will not buy a stock whose PE ratio is like you know more than ten, 
or I will not buy a stock who's like, you know, trading at like a market to book ratio of more than 1.5. And so you start putting these artificial strictures on yourself, right? Without asking a question about why is your P ratio more than 10 or why is your market book ratio more than 1.5? So I think because people have been so mechanical about the definition of what value investing in is they haven't really been doing value investing. They've been doing very mechanical investing, right? Value investing is, uh, is value. So I keep giving uh, my students uh, uh, and uh, an analogy, right? Like, let's 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 say you have two cars. Let's say you have a Hyundai and you have a Mercedes-Benz S-Class, right? The Hyundai might have a value of twenty-five thousand dollars, and the S-Class might have a value of a hundred thousand dollars. But what determines the value of that particular asset is what it's trading at with respect to what its intrinsic value is. Suppose you're able to get that S-Class Mercedes-Benz for eighty thousand dollars, right? and you're going to get the Hyundai at full price. That Mercedes-Benz S-Class just became a value stock. So technically, you would consider it to be a luxury item. It's highly priced and so on and so forth. But relative to its intrinsic value, it's, value, it's trading at a lower price, and therefore, it's a good deal. So if you take a similar kind of approach and say, don't use mechanical multiples. Which will, so in this, if you use a mechanical multiple like the price-to-earnings ratio or a price-to-book ratio, you wouldn't have considered buying that Mercedes-Benz S, S stock. You would have not considered buying a Google or a Microsoft saying, oh, no, no, Google is kind of expensive. Apple is expensive. Its P ratio is 22 but, or whatever. Now it's like in the 30s, whatever. But the point is you're missing out on why the P ratio is what it is. It's because this firm literally prints money and it's growing, which is pretty amazing for a company which is as in-depth, has as much penetration as it does. It still grows its revenues and profits. And so those are the things you should consider. The rise of computerized value strategies may also demand a greater degree of creativity from value investors in the future than it has in the past. We address this issue in our discussion with Vitaly Castle-Nelson. So I wanted to hear, do you think like the exposure to arts and creativity and creative minds has in some way helped you as an investor? And if so, um, how so? So it's kind of interesting. So I'm, I'm working on the book and it's called Intellectual Investor. And the reason it's, in, it's a kind of the next evolution of intelligent investor, and, uh, which is kind of Ben Graham's Bible of value investing. And if you think about Ben Graham's Bible of value investing, it basically has two things. It has a philosophy and it has a recipe. When most people, when you ask an, like an average person, you know, what is value investing? They say, well, it's just buying cheap stocks. And, and, when, and uh, that means that those people who read the book and they say that, they just got the recipe out of the book. They didn't get the, the, the philosophy. And the philosophy of value investing, and I, I have this, like, that's kind of the first chapter of the book I'm working on. I call it the six commandments of value investing, right? And the six commandments of value investing is basically, it talks about uh, margin of safety, the market is there to serve you, not the other way around. The, the true risk is the volatility. I mean, is a permanent loss of capital, not volatility, etc. Right. So that's the philosophy. But if you think about in general value investing, it's a very left brain kind of uh, endeavor, right? Very logical, you know. Uh, you know, and and my argument is that in the future we're going to have to compete a lot more with computers, 
a lot more with quantitative investing, right? And I can't compete with computer, you know, I, you know like it's very difficult to compute, compete with rule-based investing, right? Because, you know, your, you know rule-based investing is, you know, or algorithms uh, don't need to sleep. Then, you know, they can work 24 hours a day. And uh, there's so much computer power out there. So my argument is that we need to, as value investors, we need to evolve into, you know, we need to add creativity to investing. And that's, you know, so, and, uh, and therefore, you know, uh, I try to, my journey in life right now, I'm trying to evolve into becoming a lot more creative value investor. That's why it's kind of the intellectual investor is kind of intelligent investing plus creativity. So far, we've spent much of the podcast talking about reasons to continue to believe in value, but that doesn't mean there isn't another side of the argument. One of the problems with all investment factors is as they become more popular and more money flows into them, their premiums will likely be reduced. Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management explains a process of how factor premiums may decay over time. The general thesis is that um, factors go through a life cycle like any technology. And so you've got some early innovators that are perhaps doing the research. They've done the research. Maybe some of them have been espousing this type of approach for a while. Eventually an academic or a practitioner comes along and publishes uh, on this phenomenon. So think Fama and French publishing on uh, small and value in 1992 and, and um, all of the sub subsequent publications after that and some prior to that hog in publishing on the low volatility anomaly and Falkenstein, that sort of thing. Um, but eventually somebody, somebody publishes on it. And uh, if the publication is authored by uh, people with sufficient credibility, so either academic credentials or, or peer um, uh, status, then that's a recognized uh, effect. And so it gets, you know, it's get published in a, in a relevant journal. And then the process of adoption begins, right? So you've got people who were not familiar with it, um, who are scouring the literature, looking for ways that they can generate excess returns in portfolios that are diversified away from their common market exposure. And so you get some sort of early flows from the, the people that read the paper and are willing to adopt this new technology with very little proof, right? Because you don't have any live results that you can cite yet. It's just a concept that's with, with a paper attached and maybe a back test with a relevant T statistic. And so it, it, if you think about any normal technology, you've got this, these early adopters, which are risk takers, and then once a sufficient number of people have adopted it and um, so for peer reference, and once there's a documented uh, history of running these strategies in, in live production or live portfolios, eventually a, a larger majority of people adopt this concept, deploy capital. And as more and more capital is deployed, eventually the amount of capital that is deployed to arbitrage this effect overwhelms the effect. And so it inverts the sign of the uh, expected excess returns. So now you've got an expected deficit of returns and that will last until this late majority who were late to buy into this and probably didn't have high conviction in the concept in the first place 
eventually get fed up with these negative excess returns and slowly abandon uh, the concept. So they withdraw arbitrage capital from this um, area of the market. And eventually you reach this point of equilibrium where you've got just enough investors who with, with really hardcore conviction to um, continue to stick with this concept um, to generate a small premium. And that premium probably equilibrates or calibrates somewhere around the average premium that you get from more well-known effects like uh, the equity risk premium or the duration premium, this type of thing. Another valid argument against value is that the world has changed. The rise of technical disruption, monopolies, and intangible assets have all been headwinds to value in the past decade. Kai Wu from Sparkline Capital explains why this may create a situation where the short-term outlook for traditional systematic value is better than the long-term one. I think there's like the secular and cyclical uh, issues. But I think on the cyclical basis, I mean, value defined by, you know, standard Fama French, price to book, whatever, is two sigma cheap. Um, and as I mentioned before, I do think there's a little bit of like a tech bubble going on. So I, I could I could easily see in the next five to 10 years, a reversion of valuations, like the value of value kind of getting back to fair, um, which would be, suggest that, you know, just continue doing what you're doing, benefit from that. But again, I, I'm not, I don't really try to do market timing. I don't try to do um, uh, factor timing. Um, what I care more about is over the next hundred years, will value work? And if I'm answering that question, I, I hate to say it, but I, I will have to say that I think we do need to adapt our metrics. Right, the idea of price to book, the idea of the Ben Graham security analysis was evolved and developed in a time period where um, we lived in an industrial economy and the world is just so different now and it's only increasing. Right? The amount of intangible capital is only increasing through time. I don't think that's a cyclical thing. It's not like it's going to go back and revert. It's just only going to be getting bigger and bigger over time. And for us to just be using price to book blindly uh, and not adapting our metrics does not seem like the right thing to be doing. I don't know of a better way to close out the discussion around the struggles of value than to turn to someone who is probably better than anyone we know at putting things in a long-term context. Jim O'Shaughnessy, founder and CIO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, wrote what many consider to be the Bible of factor investing, what works on Wall Street. And his firm has done extensive research on previous periods where value has struggled. We asked Jim about the current arguments against value, and here's what he said. Do not think that ultimately price discovery goes away. Uh, events being the way they are, at some point, people are, you know, if you're walking along uh, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and you see a $20 bill, maybe you don't bend down and pick it up the first time. Maybe you're in a hurry. Maybe you're going somewhere else or someone is distracting you. Uh, then you see another one. Well, again, maybe you're really deep into that conversation with your friend and you don't bend down to pick it up. But ultimately, if you keep seeing basically free money lying there, you're going to say, I got to check this out. And I kind of think that's the way it is with these really undervalued stocks, right? You can buy uh, uh, an incredible collection of stocks right now at insanely low prices. Uh, the prospects for their business haven't changed materially. Uh, they are high quality companies, et cetera. My point is that in a market as liquid and big as the U.S. market and other global markets, eventually people say, hey, wait a minute. 
I, it reminds me a lot of uh, the dot-com era, right? And I wrote a piece called The Internet Contrarian in, in April of 99. I was a year early. But people were making the craziest arguments for why AOL was worth, I can't even remember what it was, a thousand times earnings or whatever it was. And this is another really good example of the temporal nature, uh, nature of decision-making. By that I mean, Right now, you know, it's June 2020, and we are being bombarded with all sorts of information about the market, about COVID, about riots, about everything. And we tend to time weight our decision making to the information we're looking at right now. Um, so that eventually goes away. And eventually, you get people, a big enough group of people, saying, wow, um, those small cap value stocks, if I ignore that they've done horribly over the last 10 years, and they have, uh, but eventually, uh, like Chris's paper pointed out, people say, this is crazy. Why should I be willing to pay a dollar for you know, uh, uh, a huge, uh, price to earnings ratio when I can buy 50 uh, cents on the dollar, I'm going to do that. So ultimately, we think unless the, the rules and laws of economics go away, that systematic value will again come back, usually after its last diehard adherent uh, uh, throws in the towel. Well, unless I die, I'm not throwing <laughs> the towel in, so, uh, and I don't think Patrick would either. So there you have it. This is our look at the struggles of value investing through the lenses of some of the smartest investors we know. None of us can say for sure that systematic value will work again, and if so, when it will. But either way, we are big believers in looking at both sides of the issue and trying to rely on evidence to govern our decisions. We hope this discussion is helpful as you weigh the pros and cons of the future of value investing. Thank you for listening.